Hey there, and welcome to this special episode of In Sickness and in Health, a podcast about our relationships with our bodies and issues at the intersections with chronic illness, disability, healthcare, and mortality. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person, a patient, and a podcaster who really wants to talk about these things more. I usually start each episode with a disclaimer about how nothing that we say here constitutes medical advice, and if you have any unsolicited advice of your own, you should probably just keep it to yourself. But this episode is a little different than what we normally do here with the show. This is a special clip show from my time at the 2016 Stanford Medicine X conference, featuring some of the extraordinary people that I met when I was there. Back in September, I got this incredible opportunity to attend MedX as an e-patient delegate on the storyteller track. If you're unfamiliar with it, MedX is an annual conference held at Stanford University School of Medicine. They bring together people working in medicine, technology, design, and patient advocacy for a few days of talks, panels, workshops, and other programming that is a, quote, catalyst for new ideas about the future of medicine and emerging technologies. It's unlike any other medical or technology conference, and one of the very few to not only invite patients, but actually include them in the planning and programming. It's one of the few places in healthcare where patients are honored for their experience and expertise and are treated as equal partners in innovating the future. The ePatient Scholarship Program facilitates this participation. The ePatient Scholarship Program facilitates this participation with different tracks to help patient advocates focus on and advance their particular advocacy interests. These tracks included presenters, designers, entrepreneurs, precision medicine researchers, and the track that I was on for storytellers. Those of us on the ePatient Storyteller track were tasked with creating three projects, and you can find all three of mine at insicknesspod.com slash medx-2016. For my first project, I explored digital self-portraiture as qualitative self-tracking. My second project, with the help of a couple of my fellow e-patients, explored some issues in inclusive gynecological health care. And this podcast episode that you're listening to right now is my third storyteller track project. This year's MedX was the first opportunity that I got to record live in the field, and I wasn't quite sure exactly what kind of tape that I would get. I figured if I stick a microphone in enough people's faces, I'd surely get something I could use. And I was not wrong. I got to have so many wonderful conversations, both on and off the mic, and I'm excited to share some pieces of those that I recorded. Stories are big, not just at MedX, but in health advocacy in general. It's how we connect and how we get others to take interest in these issues that are so intensely personal and important to us. For many of us, it's also an important part of processing what we've been through and an avenue for healing in ways our medical system is currently unequipped to handle. During the welcome reception on the first evening of the conference, I got a chance to sit down and chat with Dr. Michael Fratkin, a palliative care physician from Northern California. We had a longer conversation you'll get to hear in a future episode of the podcast, but he understood the importance of our drive to capture people's stories and the pursuit of telling our own. Because there is so much suffering. Um, 
there is so much difficulty medically in our society and there is such inadequate and narrow kinds of help and support for people. To me, when I look at you, and I don't know anything about your complicated history, I know that the one of the most centrally important medicines in your armamentarium is this microphone yeah. and these conversations mm-hmm. and this relationship to community mm-hmm. and this willingness to give voice to your experience. That's medicine in a way that, other than the last hundred years, people would understand that viscerally. Mm-hmm. They would understand that this person is walking a walk to heal, you know? And inside of our medical system, there's just no way to really understand what you're doing. Yeah. But I understand that what you're doing is healing and being responsible for your well-being. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's been literally the best thing I've ever done. Like spiritually, intellectually, creatively, so fulfilling. And I just started the podcast just so I could have an excuse to talk to people about this stuff because people didn't want to talk to me about it. You know, but then if I talk to other people that had health experiences, everyone has a story and everyone has these like crazy, depressing, horrible stories about these interactions with the healthcare system that's just failing literally all of us. And I just felt so compelled to like talk about it. And the response has been unbelievable. I mean, within a week, I was getting listeners in Australia, New Zealand, and India, and like all over the world. So it's not even, obviously the American medical system has its faults, but this is a global That's a thing. global cultural society. These are the norms of society that have transformed into an industrial structure over 100, 200 years, and it is global, for sure. I mean, I'll ask you, like, the next level of transformation for you, um, well, maybe I'll just, I'll make it as a statement. It's like, if the emphasis can be on the E Mm -hmm. and not on the patient, like, if from this elevated state, empowerment is where you identify rather than patient, then that's really the medicine. And that's a message for all of the folks. That's like, you are not your disease. Indie you are not your hair. I am not my hair. You know that song? Yeah. Um, I am not my job. I am just another fellow wanderer on the planet with my own set of burdens and challenges. Um, but I am empowered and I am in community. Yeah. I would push back on that a little bit about, like, I'm not my disease. I know a lot of people in the patient community who, you know, because there's, there's so much rhetoric about rising above. And, and it's just, it, it's offensive because my disease affects literally every part of my life. And it is the reason I am who I Obviously, lots of other things are the reason that I am who I am. But this experience that I've had has shaped me in such a way that my disease is actually very important to my identity. And like, sure, yeah, I'm just a wanderer, but it's actually a part of me, and I'm actually really proud of that. Well, and and also as a doctor, I like I kind of like being a doctor too, you know. <laughs> um, um, and I like being a dad. And in the quiet of the night, um, I just like knowing that I'm just a me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The conversations that I had at MedEx touched on these themes of identity, patient-centered design, patient experience, how we use technology to connect, and ways in which we're trying to compensate for the many deficits that exist in our healthcare system through that connection and storytelling. 
There's a lot to consider when telling our stories, and even more to consider when we're handling the stories of others. That was the thread that came up in so many of my conversations with the other e-patients, especially those who were on the storyteller track. In this episode, you'll hear me talk to a handful of e-patients about sharing their stories and the delicate balance of telling the stories of others. Among others, you'll hear me talk to Ryan Pryor, who is in our recent episode 36, which included our longer conversation in the MedEx studio tent. We talked about his documentary, Forgotten Plague, MECFS, Dysautonomia and POTS, how our patient communities overlap, and some ideas on how to answer the question posed by the MedEx studio of how to foster disruptive co-creation in healthcare. In this episode, you'll also hear me talk with Christopher Snyder, who is the guest in episode seven of In Sickness and In Health shortly after we launched last year, which I'll link to on the project page for this episode. I'll also link to our conversation from his show, The Just Talking Podcast, and the thread of episodes he's recorded with other MedEx people over the years. The order you'll hear these clips are the order in which they were recorded, from the morning of the first day of MedEx on Friday to shortly before the end of the conference on Sunday afternoon. Like I said, this was the first time that I was recording on the fly in groups of people, so there's more background noise than I would have liked, but at least now I have a better handle on that for the future. I also left some things in that I might have cut out in a normal episode. You'll hear us talk about brain fog and fatigue and the ways that it was cramping our style. I left these moments in because those symptoms that we e-patients contend with during the conference, just to be there in the room where it all happens, are just as important as the knowledge and other experience that we bring with us. It's something that often isn't seen, but it's important that you know it's right there with us in every moment. When I started this podcast a year ago, I never could have imagined the people I'd get to talk to and the places it would take me. Much of that is due in large part to the unbelievable network of brilliant patient advocates that MedEx has created. So I just wanted to thank everyone involved in making the conference come together, and especially to those involved in the e-patient program. You really make the magic happen. Thank you to everyone who let me stick my microphone in your face and shared about the important work that you're all doing. Thank you also to the e-patients I didn't get a chance to chat with, whose work is equally as important, and I hope we all get the chance to do it all over again next year. You can find links to the e-patients you hear in this episode, as well as links to past episodes featuring MedEx e-patient delegates on the project page for this episode. Check out my other MedEx e-patient storyteller projects at insicknesspod.com slash medex-2016 and find all our other episodes, resources, and more from us at insicknesspod.com. We're on social media at insicknesspod, so you can follow us all over the place there. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's start with MedEx Day One, where I talk to Christopher Snyder, S-N-I-D-E-R. I do not make pretzels. My badge, I'm going to read it right now, it's upside down, it says Medicine X Executive Board. So I help arrange some of the content for the conference. I help with the, the advisors for the e-patient program. And generally, I just do a lot of tweeting on behalf of the conference to generate interest and make people hopefully feel welcome, like you. Are you feeling welcome? Yeah, I just wish I wasn't so tired. That, uh, I, can't, I can't help with that. 
Um, when did you get to sleep last night? Uh, around midnight, which wasn't bad. But so you you also had a day to get used to the East Coast West Coast thing. So that whole like immortality, like I just went back in time thing, sort of faded. Um, yeah, now I think it'll probably get a little bit better tomorrow, but also there are a lot more options tomorrow. So you're gonna have to. I would advise you plan out your day tomorrow tonight so that you don't feel overwhelmed by the uh, the mass amount of uh, of options available to you at this wonderful Stanford Medicine X 2016 conference. So you actually have been on my podcast before. You were my seventh guest, I believe. I I enjoy sharing stories. I enjoy the few opportunities that I get to share my own story. It's weird to have questions asked of me. Normally, I'm the person asking how the weather is and. It's, it's fun. There's a great opportunity and diversity of stories out there, but sometimes it just takes a little bit of effort to go find them. And really, it, it isn't that much effort that's required. All you got to do is just you know, look around. Yeah. But a lot of people will stay within their own little circles, which is how my podcasting started. Like I started with just people in my gaming community, just people with diabetes, and then once I ran out of those people, I had to look out. I had to, I had to look elsewhere, and it's been obviously for the better, at least in my opinion. Yeah, you have amassed a very impressive collection of uh, specifically just the people from MedX. Um, in the run-up to this year's MedX, you were tweeting out older episodes that you had done with MedX people, and it like blew my mind how many there were. Did it like? When you looked at it as like a body of work, was it surprising to you? Or I, I mean, I knew beforehand that I had a lot of people from the conference on. I never actually did a f- formal count, um, but I, I knew that the very last tweet I was going to put in that series was going to be my little snippet of like, "Hey, everybody, here's my thoughts leading up to this year's conference." But I wanted to build up to it, saying like, "Hey, I've had all these conversations. It's been a lot of fun. I've grown as as a person, as a patient advocate, as a patient, and and being able to." to share some of that stuff and reflect on it. It's been a lot of fun because so many people have come a long way. Like, it's, this is a really hardcore name drop, but Susanna Fox has been on my podcast twice, and she's a really big deal, especially at this conference, but also she works at Health and Human Services now. She's the chief technology officer. Yes, and she's also giving a keynote, I think, later today. And that's that's really cool. Like, we're sort of on a first-name basis. She, It doesn't mean anything, but she likes my tweets on Twitter, and, you know, we, we exchange conversations and stuff. And it's, it's cool to know that, you know, once her... Once her term is up, I'm probably going to try and get her back on again and talk about government stuff. But to know that I've had access to these great conversations, to these inspiring people, it's been a lot of fun. And it actually, I don't know, like, because of the nature of my podcast, I don't really get a chance to think about, like, the past. It's always on to the next one. I'm still stressing about what I'm going to do for next Tuesday. But taking that those few days to really catalog all those tweets, draft them up, send them out, and be like, you know what, I've, I've done something I'm really proud of. And I've always been proud of the podcast, but whenever you are able to to gather them all together in one big clump of tweets of self-promotion. It felt really great. Yeah, it was very impressive to see. This next clip is part of another longer conversation that you'll hear in a future episode. That afternoon, I talked to... I'm Dawn Gibson, also known as at Dawn M. Gibson on Twitter, the founder and host of Spoonie Chat. I'm here at MedX on the Storyteller track, and the first part I already completed, which is a personal essay, which I'd never written before, but it was about how I came to the Spoonie movement uh, from previously being an able-bodied person and then getting ankylosing spondylitis in 2001. And my friend Kay, who was a secretary on campus where I was going to school, she had lupus and she told me about butyoudontlooksick.com which was founded by Christine Misrandino and she is the founder of the worldwide Spoonie movement and I really 
gravitated toward that theory and understanding of living in a body that is kind of playing tricks on you and, you know, that whole thing. And after a period of time, I started becoming an activist myself and trying to organize patients to understand what they're going through kind of in a social perspective versus a medical perspective because I don't have any qualifications to do that. Uh, I actually, I found the, the spoon theory by Googling how to explain how tired I am. Because I realized one day that when I say I'm tired, people have no idea what I'm talking about. No, people don't understand fatigue. Even the word fatigue, it's so, um, it's so overused as a colloquialism that people can sometimes, well, most of the time they struggle to understand that it means I am not animated. Like, I am not an animated life form right now. It's... Uh, everything has gone out of me and I can't seem to put anything back in me versus, oh, I'm a little tired and I need to rest. And then after resting, I will, you know, rise triumphant. Good luck with that. (laughs) I know. Uh, My other project is an advice column and that came out of Spoonie Chat. I put it to the membership. What do you think an advice columnist would say? I mean, what questions would she get and what would she say? I was kind of inspired just by the fact that you got things like Dear Prudy and, um, you know, all these other advice columnists that are kind of having a moment right now. And that's interesting in and of itself that there is an advice moment that that lets you know that there's a lot of um, needs going unmet in, in related to different life experiences that people are having. And I thought, well, now I, everywhere I look, there are all these personal essays on these major platforms and websites and everything, and people are talking about what I want you to know about my invisible illness, what I want you to know about having this and that and having been and done this or that, you know. So uh, over a series of chats, we um, sourced some questions and um, then I polished them up a little bit and tried to take any identifying information off of them and generalize them a little bit because people need to feel comfortable and I want to respect their comfort level. It's really important to me because they're trusting me. So I need to earn that trust. And I put together a little column and um, coming from my perspective, as someone who's been living with spondylitis for 15 years and has been living with uh, food allergies for, I guess it's nine years now. Yeah, so some of it is so frustrating because it's, I mean, it's all frustrating, but it's some of it's super frustrating because I find myself and I know other patients find themselves bumping up against ignorance and judgment. And almost all the advice I ever end up giving anybody boils down to it's not fair but you have to find a way to separate yourself from the need for approval because some people will never approve and if you're waiting on that you can't you're gonna die first right you will (laughs) die first everyone will die first like it's just not happening and that's hard especially because so many of the spoonie set are young women and as young women we're definitely oriented toward approval and affirmation in society and we're not getting it in this no. situation. No. And it's never, never going to come. No. I, I personally have found that get, letting go of that was probably 
the single best thing that I could do for myself. I was just I realizing. Agree. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. And it was the hardest part of it because I could educate myself on the information about having spondylitis and having food allergies. I could even try and educate other people, which I still do when I feel that this person is in a receptive mode, but I'm not going to waste my valuable energy and my personal life experience. I'm not spilling that all over the place for people who can't hear it and aren't interested in my wellness and the thriving of other disabled people. Ain't nobody got spoons for that. Ain't nobody got spoons for that. That's, that's very true. That's one reason why I began Spoonie Chat was to unify people with invisible disabilities from every possible perspective. And I, I, the idea was to scoop up as many historically underrepresented and marginalized people at the same time mm-hmm. with that because I, I just knew we, ha- we had to do something together yeah. across the disease boundaries. Has that been challenging? Has that been, was it like, yes, finally, we've been waiting for this? Like, how did, how did that play out for you? Uh, it is challenging because, well, when I began, I was still thinking about um, unifying people across rheumatology diagnoses. It didn't occur to me that there wasn't necessarily a big support network for people with advanced and serious cases of endometriosis. It didn't occur to me that people with mental health conditions might not be well heard and received, and they they want to be in on chat. I, ca- I just cast the doors wide open, but what's kind of interesting is that some participants still think of it as a chat for their own disease. Interesting. And I'm, I have no problem with that yeah. because it's there for them and what they need it to be. I'm not there to tell people how they need to do anything and how they need to think about any of it other than in a way that embraces self-care and valuing themselves. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I've completed those two projects, and then my third project is going to be a Storify. And um, Storify is an interesting platform because it allows users to grab social media posts from around the web and curate them. And that's important because there's so many posts everywhere and it's virtually impossible to find what you want. You might find a tip of the iceberg, but with tools like Storify, you can dig down Mm -hmm. and really arrange things nicely for yourself and other people to find. Yeah. And and all in one place instead of having to crawl the internet. Yes, definitely. I know that there is a fine line with platforms like Storify because we are accessing people's work. So I wouldn't feel comfortable pulling someone's entire blog post or something like that. That's inappropriate. That's someone's original work product. Um, The culture of Twitter and Facebook, I think, is a little bit different than the culture of blogging. So I feel like as long as we're giving credit and not ever jacking somebody's work, it's consistent with those cultural norms. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the platforms are built on sharing and reposting and retweeting, and it just makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yep. During that evening's welcome reception on the alumni lawn, I also talked to... My name is Liz Salmi. My job is I'm the director of communications for the Coalition for Compassionate Care of California, but I'm also known in the e-patient community as the Liz Army. I have a blog, thelizarmy.com. I'm on Twitter at the Liz Army. Any internet account that can be had, I just get my username. You can find me on openhumans.org and download all my patient data at the Liz Army, including my genome. 
in my Fitbit steps, not that anyone cares. Yeah. Um, did you ever struggle with or wrestle with the privacy implications of sharing your genome? I have wrestled with it, uh, but I... Even being open about living with brain cancer, at first I, you know, on the blog and stuff, I said my name was Liz, the Liz Army, but I never said where I lived, I, you know, and then eventually I kind of got lazy. I'm like, okay, I'm in California. And then I finally was like, okay, I'm in Sacramento. And then I started doing enough things that people would attach my first and last name with stuff. I'm like just there. Yeah, so I'm kind of, because you start, you go out, you get out of the patient closet and you say, I live with this thing, and so you become an advocate and different things. And um, I'm on the medical advisory board with the National Brain Tumor Society, and then they put my name up on their website. I'm like, well, that looks cool. Might as well add it to my LinkedIn profile. Oh, you know, it just adds to the street cred of the things I know. And now I work in a healthcare it, with a nonprofit that deals in the health. And so it's just extra, extra titles and badges and mission achievements. But um, now, because I am living well with this, the disease, I think people are like, whoa, you can live with this in certain cases. And um, yeah, it's just part of it is just my life. You know, your life changes after something like this. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just always curious. Because I kind of struggle with that, especially like with genetic data. Yeah, yeah. Oh, know. yeah. So you asked about the sharing of the genome and all that stuff. Uh, so I have an account with 23andMe, you know, just some basic stuff. But they also have an option where you can download a zip file of your genome. And I never thought that I would need that. Um, but in big reveal, in my talk tomorrow, I will talk a little bit. Spoiler alert. I know, and only to you. I actually wouldn't say anybody, but that this is probably going to be used later. My talk is actually going to be about why suddenly that became important. Oh, I am very much looking forward to that. So how, how was your day? It was eye-opening and exciting and educational. What was your favorite part? Have a favorite part? My favorite part are the patient stories, especially when they are preceded by a video with test, uh, touching music, and it's all like, oh, I'm going to cry. Like, that's the best. It's the hallmark moment. Yeah. Anything with the feels. It's like, bring the feels, and then you're open. You become, you're disarmed, and you're like, okay, i got to listen. What is the point of having that story being told? And on Saturday, I spent a little more time just wandering around. I found myself in the medic studio tent where I ran into. I'm uh, Ryan Pryor. I'm a multimedia journalist and a social entrepreneur and an advocate for chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, did you have a hard time getting diagnosed? It took me six months, which was seemed very hard at the time. But from people who I've interviewed, um, it's very extremely fast. And three, five, or ten years would be... Uh, not at all uh, surprising when I interviewed people. And yeah, I mean, after I inter probably interviewed over 100 patients on film, and I've you know talked to several hundred and read, read the stories of several thousand. And uh, Obviously, you haven't done any formalized study of this, but do you see, when you talk to patients, any disparity between the genders as far as time to diagnosis? There is a belief that um, women... I, mean, I think it is true that women get this more commonly than men, and that does play into some role. So, like, I was a 17-year-old male athlete, and so there's a reluctance on the part of the doctors to diagnose it because they, they think of it as something that's something that middle-aged women get. Uh, and I've interviewed tons of, you know, many young male athletes and bodybuilders and army people and 
um, so that that is not uh, a true thing to say that you know middle-aged women are the. I mean, maybe maybe they get it more often than other people, but there's uh, no shortage of you know, young men who um, also get it. Right. Doing my podcast, the diagnosis stories that I get from women versus the diagnosis stories that I get from men are pretty different. Like it took you six months to get diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, with, with extensive parental help, with extensive right. financial involvement, with right, which is going to so many doctors in very, very rapid succession. Right, yeah. And the economics of all of this is like a whole other issue so and the cool. geography of it even. Um, but women are routinely denied care and routinely denied their experience. And as a result, we wind up getting so much sicker before we actually get any help. And, you know, as far as rising costs of healthcare goes, there's a lot of talk uh, about preventative care, um, and that's important. But what about believing people when they tell you there's something wrong with them? Because we talk about these epidemics of heart disease and diabetes, but we don't talk about epidemics of women and people of color being denied the care that they need before I had to get so sick before anyone would take me seriously. And that is unacceptable. That night, I was talking to my hotel roommate about her storyteller project. My name is Melissa. I am a blogger. My blog name is 710.9. Uh, and I'm working on a project called Asked at MedX, where I am taking a photo of a person and then asking them a one-question interview. So you were, before we started, I actually had to interrupt you and say, stop talking. I need to record this. Uh, you were telling me about um, your experience talking to the people that you're interviewing and the different kinds of responses that people gave you. Yes. So, um, so the question is, tell me about a positive experience you've had as a patient and... Um, some of these experiences do not strike me as particularly positive. Um, the one in particular that sparked that comment was a guy who went to the doctor and was initially seen by a medical student who proceeded to look up his symptoms on Google and misdiagnose him. <laughs> and then the doctor came in the room and told the medical student, no, that's not right. Then the positive part of the story was that the doctor had come in and figured out what was actually going on. The was, end. The end. Positive was, experience. Yeah, I was there for that one, um, which is interesting. And it didn't strike me as, as weird, not necessarily weird, you know, and obviously the person who told the story had a positive experience and that's like important and valid and you know, yeah. Um, but uh, looking back at it, I'm like, oh yeah, that is not particularly positive. Although it, it makes me think about, like, why would that be a positive experience? And the answer that that comes to it, to my brain is that it's actually kind of reassuring when like somebody's in charge and they step in and they're like, hey, wait a minute, let's fix this, you know? He actually specifically ended that story with something along the lines of that started to go wrong and the system worked. Mm -hmm. 
so like he he clearly viewed it as a positive but it just didn't feel like that just felt yeah. kind of like a neutral like that's right. how that should have gone that didn't feel uh yeah, that felt like kind of base level. That felt like where it should be, not well, any better than that. Well, that's a really interesting point because something that I've struggled with doing my podcast is that um, is is the the volume of stories of how this is not working in really profound and devastating ways. Um that's really hard to sit with and take in the scope of. We've both had plenty of bad experiences in the yeah. healthcare system, and we both know lots of people right. who have had bad experiences in the healthcare system. So I don't feel like either one of us have super ridiculously high expectations right right i think that was that was kind of where i was going with my point was that like the bar is pretty low and yet <laughs> i feel like it's not unreasonable to expect that uh for positive to earn positive points it's got to be better than the system worked right I wasn't misdiagnosed by Google. <laughs> yeah, it would be nice if someone was in charge and knew what they were doing. That seems very comforting to me. <laughs> so since the bar is very low, I know I answered to you that, well, first I laughed. Yeah. Because that's always how I react to a question like that. I thought I would get more responses like that, honestly. Yeah. I fully expected far more people just give me the negative story and right. not ever even get around to the positive story. Right. I, I thought you meant that they would just laugh at you. Yeah, I, I expected that. <laughs> I Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of a nonstop. No, there are no positive stories. Yeah. And, no, there definitely are. Of yeah. Course. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the the bad stories are plentiful, and a lot of times the emotional weight that they carry, I think, is so much heavier, I don't know if that's the right word, um, than, like, the positive experiences that we have. Although the positives are, like, super important, and, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't still be going to doctors if I didn't have positive experiences with a few of them yeah what have you what kind of response have you gotten for the positive ones it's a lot of someone finally listened to me yeah kind of stuff yeah that's a pretty transcendent moment yeah I think, for a lot of us yeah i was being dismissed and someone yeah. finally took me seriously right yeah the day i got diagnosed with my incurable genetic condition was the best day of my life I, I say that and I mean it. Yeah. I mean it less so now, I think, because I have some distance from it. And, you know, I've had some time to, like, get used to being like, okay, so this is just my life, <laughs> you know. So the the belief is big. The trust is big. Are there any stories, any of the positive stories that stand out to you in particular at this point, at, right now? Because you're still going to be working on it tomorrow. Face. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, uh, for the for the listeners at home, you just made like a hard thinking face, like a skeptical hard thinking face. That was it was priceless. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I've got one that stands out. No, yeah. it, it may just be the migraine and the brain fog, of and, course, of course, and the conference burnout talking. But no, I'm not sure I've got one that's really standing out right now. Um. It's just been an interesting mix. Some of the stories that we talked about is the woman who had anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if I didn't do a great job of telling that story. Yeah. Because the way that you read it was not the way that she told it to me. Right. Um, but I, I, I said this immediately, though, that I was projecting so much on top of that because yeah. of my own experience with being misdiagnosed for so long with anxiety and actually having cardiac issues yeah, and actually going through batteries upon batteries of tests that showed nothing, which if you're listening to this, that's not necessarily you also. <laughs> <laughs> I I am an outlier. Uh, maybe we. I, who knows with the prevalence of this? Because it's you know often misdiagnosed as anxiety. But um, that but, yeah, actually that's a very interesting point that I totally didn't even really think about. That so many people, particularly women, are in fact dismissed yep. as having... Oh, yeah. And this is something that I know very well. I, right. I, in fact, was dismissed as having anxiety by my primary care doctor of course. when I was, in fact, very sick. Yeah. The woman that we're talking about, the story that we're talking about... Uh, in fact, knew that what she was having was panic attacks mm -hmm. and generalized anxiety. Mm -hmm. And she was going into urgent care and telling them, I know what's going on is that I'm having an anxiety right. attack, but I feel like I'm having a heart attack and I am afraid that I'm having a heart attack. Yeah. I know it's anxiety, but I, I'm afraid I'm having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And they told her, no, you're perfectly healthy. Yeah. You're not having a heart attack. Yeah. Go on home. You're fine. And ultimately, uh, she went to another doctor who referred her to a cardiologist, and the cardiologist said, yeah, we should do a workup just in case. Let's, mm -hmm. let's check this out. And she found that very reassuring and helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, the workup was normal. She was right. She was just worried about it, which was what she really knew, and she appreciated being taken seriously about it anyway, and uh, it was... It was a positive outcome for her. She really appreciated that they took the time to take care of that for her and to show her the uh, test results. And it, it was a great outcome for her. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I love that someone somewhere is feeling good about something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's interesting that despite me having that same experience and knowing that almost every woman with a difficult to diagnose chronic illness yeah. has been told, eh, it's all in your head, yeah. you're just crazy lady, that I didn't pick up on that piece of her story. Yeah. Having had her tell it to me and hearing her say, I knew it was just anxiety. Mm -hmm. I went in there and told them, this is just anxiety. I, so I have a, 
have a really hard time with the phrase just anxiety. And, and you know, obviously there is a huge issue with access to mental health care in this country and healthcare in general. Um, there's definitely access issues and all sorts of stuff. But telling someone it's just anxiety and sending them home is not helpful. I got that for years. And this is something that like hits such a nerve with me. And, and I, that's something also that, um, as, as you start to interact with people's stories like this, I, you start to realize, not just people's stories like this, but then people who are on the receiving end of that story, your, your readers, my listeners, whatever the case may be, that people bring their own experience, like everything that we do and think and and whatever is filtered through our own experience and people's reactions will say more about them than it says about that person, their case, what they had to say about it and how you wrote it up. Uh But like when you are facilitating or, uh, you know, handling other people's stories there's this like ethical portion to it that I sometimes struggle with which is and I'll struggle with it editing whatever becomes of this conversation because I it's it it feels irresponsible of me to even discuss these openly without having talked to those people or, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a, it's a quagmire. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Yeah. Um, when she told me that story, she said a minute later, like, you know, I've never really told anybody about this, but I almost felt a little guilty about it. Yeah. Yeah. If a story is particularly emotional for someone and they are not, they don't, they're not like out about it. They're, they're not open about it. Like you can sometimes sense that it might be the first time that they told that story. And I've gotten this piece of advice repeatedly, which is to always ask if that's the first time that they've told that story. And I always forget. Um, but then when it happens and the person offers that up, it's like, oh my God, like, because now you are, you're the steward of this thing that they have not shared that they may or may not, you know, want to share. They might feel weird about how it gets shared. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, um, putting it out there with her photo. Right. In terms of the privacy, I did think some about not using names, whether or not to tag people on Twitter, mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah, these are these are all decisions that I... These are all things that I have to consider every time I put out a podcast. Yeah. And I don't know what the right answer is. I mean, obviously, these people knew right. that I was taking a photo and they were sharing that story. Right. It wasn't like I was being sneaky about it. And yeah. if anybody asked me to not share it, if they changed their mind or whatever, I would take it down immediately. Mm-hmm. It's not at all like... Like, I have no problem protecting anybody's privacy about any right. of this. I don't want to 
be a creep and share anything yeah. that someone doesn't want to share or anything. Yeah, yeah, of course. All of these things are, are, are things that we need to consider when we're handling people's stories, you know, especially those that are not our own. And I, you know, I think this extends to patient advocates myself included that that do handle other people's stories but also parents and caregivers um where did i start this the beginning of this thought i'm so tired yeah me too okay (laughs) let's wrap it up uh the next afternoon i got a brief moment to sit down and chat with Allie one of the e-patient advisors, a bit more about these themes and where storytelling fits in with our mental health. Um, I am so tired. What did I, you were talking about something and then I interrupted you and asked you if I could record it and now I don't remember what that was either. <laughs> and now my, my overtired fried brain is going to have trouble. It's going to come to me. Um, we were actually, we were talking about your podcast, how, um, so... I like knew who you were. I think this was pre our medics interactions. Um, and I had been actually complaining on Twitter about, um, probably in the ask me about my uterus context, shout out to Abby Norman. Um, that time of the month for diabetes can be awful because it's like the hormones can send your blood sugar really high or low. Um, but sometimes it's like you're injecting insulin and your body thinks it's water. You don't feel well. You already don't feel well. And now you have the diabetes parts coming into play. Um, so I think I was complaining on Twitter about that. And I said something about my emotions being very extreme. Like it's not just like, you know, the stereotype of the boyfriend complaining at the bar to his friends. Like, oh, my girlfriend's so crazy. She's PMSing. Like there are days where I'm like, I feel a little bit just like the emotions are super, super strong. Um, so then you reached out to me and directed me to your PMDD podcast. I might have to ask you what that stands for. I've looked it up a million times and always forget. So premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Okay. So I did. Thank you. So yeah. So then I listened to your podcast a little bit. I really liked it. I thought that information was helpful um just to know that something like that exists i don't know if i have it or not but um just to know like okay you're not i think we we all struggle with this with health stuff we want confirmation that what we're experiencing is valid and and you're not crazy you know your body and um so that was cool and then we also connected um recently i wrote a blog talking about our medics panel which we're doing about an hour from now, um, on mental health and chronic disease management. And I solicited feedback on social media and you wrote into me about medical PTSD and linked to your podcast there. And I listened to that and you had a line about unsolicited medical advice is never not annoying. And I love that because there are some days there's this fine line on Twitter. I love Twitter. I I like that it's 140 characters and it's constrained. Um, But sometimes I wish I could put the disclaimer at the front of my tweets. Like, I'm not in the mood for elaborating on this. So, like, don't give me your your great-grandmother's solution for solving high blood sugar right now. And even, I'm guilty of it, too, where I think as human beings we all want to help other people. And 
you know, you see a fellow diabetic and you understand what they're going through. Okay, I'm going to offer them my solution. But some days you just don't want to hear it. And, and it's this conundrum of, okay, I'm very public and outspoken as an advocate and I try to to tell the real story, which includes the good and the bad and the days when you're angry and frustrated. Um, but on the flip side of that, then that, that comes with opening yourself up to other people may contact you when you're not necessarily in, in the mood to go into further detail about why you don't feel well that day. Right. Because <laughs> they're missing an awful lot of information about things that you have or have not tried and why and what kind of medications you're on and uh, what like different lifestyle factors might affect, you know, how you approach your, your disease. I think um, exactly to your point, there's so much, you know, society and the media, they already kind of invalidate a lot of the things that we go through with chronic illness. I don't think the daily struggle and the strength that we all have to portray each day, that doesn't get illustrated enough. And when it's within our own community, one thing that bothers me is I think user error, 99% of the time, it's not the user error. It's um, the tech product because tech is not a cure. It's imperfect. Um, you know, I, I, you're a lot more generous than I am when it comes to user error, but, but that's a fair point. I think, um, well, and, and to go back to that, I know because I had an insulin pump product that was defective and I went through hell trying to be heard about it. And that even came with the troubleshooting within my own community. There are a lot of people who, who gave helpful advice. Um, but there were also some people who were constantly questioning me, well, what are you doing wrong? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I sat down with nurses, doctors, insulin pump reps. I wasn't doing anything wrong. There was a product defect. And, um, you know, I, I just think, sure, obviously we're all not perfect and we may make errors sometimes, but, um, we don't need to be hard on ourselves. Society and the media do a good job of that already. So that's very true. Do you need to go eat? I do. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for being cognizant of that. Yeah. that's no problem. And just like that, it was all over. That panel on mental health for patients with chronic conditions that Allie mentioned went great. And it was standing room only, which only serves to highlight just how important managing our mental health can be and what an appetite there is for these conversations about it. It's a topic that has come up frequently on this show and will likely continue to surface even more as the podcast grows. Well, that does it for this special episode of In Sickness and In Health. You can find our other episodes, resources, and more from us at insicknesspod.com and find links to the e-patients you heard in this episode on the project page there. Check us out on social media at InSicknessPod, and don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm.